Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the mid-1800s, if you happened to be a Quaker born in England, there were lots of things you couldn't do. Hunt, attend theater performances, play sports. But there was one pastime, maybe kind of unexpectedly, that was totally okay. Science. Which is probably why a man named Joseph Lister, you know his name from the product named after him, Listerine, it's probably why he ended up throwing himself into scientific study and changing medicine forever. The story of how he did that is both brilliant and gruesome. Lindsay Fitzharris has written about it in The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's quest to transform the grisly world of Victorian medicine. Lindsay, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what did surgeons do in, let's say, like the 1820s, which is when Joseph Lister was born? Um, What was their role? In the early 19th century, they were more akin to barbers, and they were actually, there was barber surgeons in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, and they kind of did everything. They didn't just uh, deal with your hair. Um, they, <laughs> so, the barbers, wait, 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 wait. They were cutting your hair and amputating they, your leg they also? Were, yeah. They Whoa. could be. Um, in the late 18th century, the barber surgeons, they did a lot of bloodletting. That was their, their number one um, service mm. that they offered. And in fact, the red and white barber's pole comes from the fact that the barbers were bloodletters. What they would do is they would take the bloody rags from their patients and they would tie them on a pole outside of their shop and that these these rags would wrap around the pole and create that red and white stripes that we're familiar with today. Hmm. It's kind of like how your dentist sends you, you know, a reminder that you need a cleaning and it's it's like usually like a toothbrush that's smiling. It's that it was kind of like that like you'd walk past the barber shop and you think, "Well, I need to go in for my my monthly bloodletting." So they did all kinds of things. They did bloodletting, they lanced boils. They dealt with the external part of the body. Hmm. But when we get to the 19th century, when we get to uh, Joseph Lister's time, bloodletting has gone to the wayside a bit. Some of the surgeons were incredibly interesting characters. Um, One of my favorites is this man named Robert Liston. He was known as the fastest knife in the West End, and he could take your leg off in under 30 seconds. (laughs) It sounds like a guy in Arizona in, like, the Tombstone days who was, like, the fastest (laughs) draw in the West, like the fastest knife in the West End. That is is, uh, what he was. He could take your leg off. In under 30 seconds, he was he was six two. He was very large for the 19th century, and um, he could hold you down with his left hand. And in fact, wow. he would move so fast that he, when he was switching instruments, he would hold the bloody instruments in his mouth, which really underlies how far we've come right. uh, with right. hygiene and our understanding of disease. But if you were living in a pre-anesthetic era, you wanted someone like Liston. You wanted the fastest knife in the West End because you mm. certainly wouldn't want to be you know struggling against the knife as your leg is taken off oh for a God. long period of time. And and we're talking talking about also a time where there was basically no anesthesia. Yes. Um, so the discovery of ether happens in 1846. Um, and I think that if anybody thinks about the history of surgery, which might be unlikely, um, but if anybody has <laughs> given it any thought, they think of the moment that anesthesia is discovered. It's the age of agony is over. We have conquered pain. You don't have the, the patient struggling against the knife anymore. But what happens is people don't understand that germs exist. So actually, mm. surgery becomes much more dangerous dangerous immediately following the discovery of ether because the surgeon is more willing to pick up the knife. He's more willing to go deeper into the body. And as a result, these operations become slow-moving executions and post-operative infection rises. So let's, I want to go back to Robert Liston for a second. And Liston and Lister have similar names, but they are not, <laughs> yes, they're not yeah. related. But, but Robert Liston, this, as you say, like overpowering surgeon, incredibly fast at 
cutting people up. You tell this story of one time when he did a surgery, and not only did the patient die, but there were more deaths, even though there he wasn't, he was only operating. I don't know how you can kill other people who are not being operated on, but do you want to it's tell that an story? Impressive, yeah, it's an impressive feat. It's one of my favorite stories about Liston. Um, he's sort of a bigger than life character, and, and he adds a lot of color into the butchering art because of that. But he was operating on a patient. He was removing the patient's leg, and he was moving so fast that he accidentally took off his assistant's finger. And as he was oh switching God. instruments, he slashed the coat of a spectator, and that guy died of fright and oh um gosh. the assistant he died, died of fright he, that's what it said in the historical record he died of fright which wow. is impressive in and of itself the assistant died of gangrene later it, it, his hand became infected mm-hmm. and the patient died as well and so it's kind of jokingly referred to as the only operation with a 300 percent mortality rate <laughs> Let's talk about how um, medicine was changing at the moment that Joseph Lister got involved. I mean, obviously, we've got these huge problems with, as you say, you know, surgery is kind of up to the whims of however good your surgeon is, which might not be good at all. You've got dirt problems, I mean, in hospitals. And into this, Joseph Lister comes into these very dirty hospitals. And, you know, obviously, he wants to be a doctor. What is happening at the moment that he gets into medicine? Well, he enters medical school in 1848, and um, at this point, the hospitals are growing. There, there's these big urban hospitals that are springing up because the population is also exploding at this time. But keep in mind that the hospitals were only places that you went if you were poor. Okay. Um, you didn't go if you were wealthy or middle class. You were treated in, in your own home. And it was also really what historians call the deserving poor because you still had to bring some level of income to cover um, various fees associated with it. For instance, huh. some hospitals charged you for your inevitable burial because it was so expected you were going to die in these places. Um, Other hospitals charged you um, if if they deemed you extra foul. So these places were grimy and dingy. Uh, In 1825, a patient had wriggling maggots and mushrooms growing in the damp-soiled sheets of his hospital bed. Um, And what's crazy is he didn't even feel the need to complain about this. Um, It was so expected that these were the conditions. So this is what Lister steps into in the 1840s when he enters medical school. You write about a hospital where there was a chief bug catcher. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, the best, I always say, the best that could be said about these 19th, these early Victorian hospitals is that they were a slight improvement over their 18th century predecessors, <laughs> which isn't saying much because yeah. you're right, the bug catcher was paid more than the surgeon and the doctor wow. in the 18th century. And there's a guy named Andrew Cook who is the bug destroyer, and he claims to have rid 20,000 beds of lice. So when you consider there was that many lice in the yeah. hospitals, you can understand why he was paid pretty well. Right, right. So, yeah, so into this comes Joseph Lister. Yeah, so Lister inherits this grimy world, and it had reached such a problem that it was seriously suggested that the only way to control infection was to just burn the hospitals down from time to time and just start anew. And I kind of love that imagery, this idea of, you know, you think of the hospitals today, just like imagine burning these buildings down. This is the world that he steps into. Um, And I always like to remind people, too, that going into medicine, making that decision was um, a dangerous one as well, because this is a time before mass vaccinations. It's a time before antibiotics. People are dying of diseases like smallpox. You're exposing yourself to huge dangers as you walk onto these wards. And as a result, a lot of um, medical students and, and doctors and surgeons died being exposed to these patients. 
You know, I mentioned before about Joseph Lister was maybe a little unusual because he was a Quaker, had this family that was, you know, observant in many ways. But one of those things, as I said, is like that science was okay. And in fact, a lot of Quakers were really into science because other some other things were prohibited. And Joseph Lister's father had a really good, for the time, microscope. That's right. Talk about how microscopes impacted Lister and what he would go on to do. The microscope is very important to the story I tell in the butchering art. Um, The microscope had been around for quite some time by the 19th century, but it wasn't accepted as a medical tool. A lot of people in medicine thought that it would make for lazy clinicians, that doctors would stop using their eyes or trusting their eyes to diagnose patients. The other thing was that if you think about it, you're looking down a microscope and whatever you're seeing might not actually impact how you treat a patient ultimately. So it was seen as sort of a frivolous instrument. You know, why would you use the microscope in medicine? Mm. But as you say, Lister was a Quaker, and his father had this huge interest in the microscope. He actually makes a lot of improvements on lenses. And um, Lister grows up with the microscope. So when he goes off to medical school in the 1840s, he brings with him this unusual instrument. Mm. And it's really because of his exposure to the microscope and his father's interest in science that he's so receptive to Louis Pasteur's germ theory down the road. Hmm. And I like to say that this is a love story between science and medicine because it's one of the first instances where a scientific principle, which is germ theory, is applied to medical practice through the development of antisepsis. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Lindsay Fitzharris, author of the new book, The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine. And before Lister um, knew about the work of Louis Pasteur, I assume people just would go from one hospital bed to the next hospital bed and essentially give the second patient the thing that the first patient had because they had no idea that they were transporting germs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I okay. mean, pa- surgeons rarely wash their hands or their instruments. And mm. it's it's mind-boggling to us because we operate in a world where we know germs exist. But if you think about it logically, why would you keep washing your hands when they were just going to get dirty if you right. didn't understand that germs right, existed? Right, right. So, I mean, the, it, was, it was just such an unhygienic time. Now, there were other people who were working on this problem. Florence Nightingale uh, was working in parallel with Lister on a hygiene movement. She actually didn't at first believe that in germs. She thought that that was a step too far. Uh, there was also an Austrian physician named Semmelweis. He was putting together this idea that if you wash your hands before treating patients, that um, post-operative infections or infection rates in general go down. Mm. He was eventually put into a, a lunatic asylum. His colleagues called him the hand washer. Yeah, really? and he kind of died this very yeah. sad um, end to his life. But the difference between Semmelweis and Nightingale and some of these other people who are working on, on this problem and who are working in general on p- improving hygiene in the Victorian period is that they didn't have the agent by which disease was spread. And that's really where Lister comes in. He takes Louis Pasteur's germ theory and he puts the connection together that this is what's causing disease. Hmm. And that's really Lister's contribution. So amidst all this, this sort of professional development and advancement of Joseph Lister, his sister gets breast cancer. And at the time, it sounds like breast cancer was something that was pretty close to fatal because... You, it was hard to take a breast off or to do a major operation because you'd have a huge wound and you would just die from that wound. Yeah, anyway. it would get right. infected, right? 
Yeah, I mean, people, the mastectomies have been going on for quite a long time, even uh, 17th and 18th centuries, again, without any anesthetic, which is mind-boggling. My own mother had a double mastectomy five years ago. And when you think about how routine it almost is in medicine today, um, it just shows how far we've come. Doctors were able to diagnose breast cancer, but again, by the time you could see it, you have to imagine that it was likely that it had spread elsewhere in the body, especially if the breast was necrotizing. It probably was very far along. Those women who survive a mastectomy and end up living a long life, you do have to wonder, was it cancerous or was it just a growth? Mm. But you get plenty of stories of mastectomies. Lister's sister gets breast cancer, and um, she actually approaches several other surgeons before she approaches her brother, and they refuse to do the operation because, just what you said, the open wound would uh, leave her at risk of postoperative infection, which could kill her a lot quicker than the cancer. So the idea was, you know, live out your life. But she goes up to Scotland to visit her brother, and he's just at this point developing his antisepsis techniques, and he decides to do this operation on his own dining room table. And um, it takes it out of him emotionally, as one can imagine. But she does survive. She doesn't develop any postoperative infection. He's very careful to clean everything beforehand, as well as clean out the wound afterwards. And it's sort of a miracle. And I like to say that Lister saved everyone from his sister to Queen Victoria and everybody right. in between. He did. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and that's it. That's another story. Uh, the the Queen. Um, she got an abscess under her armpit, and Lister was called to her bedside. And uh, he was able to remove this abscess and drain it, and she didn't get any kind of infection. And he liked to quip afterwards that he was the only man who could plunge a knife into the queen and live uh, to to tell them about the experience. Um, But yeah, it's really remarkable how many different kinds of people he operated on, how many lives he's changed, how many lives he saved, how many lives he continues to save um, because we now operate with the knowledge of germs. So obviously, he, to some degree, is a celebrated figure, or he never would have been asked to help treat the queen. But can you talk about the resistance to his ideas about, like, this is how things should be. We should use antiseptic. Things should be clean. This is the way surgery should be going forward. Yeah, I mean, there was a huge amount of resistance, unsurprisingly. Whenever a paradigm is broken and and a new paradigm rises, there's always resistance within the medical and scientific community. And actually, I hope people uh, within these communities read this book and realize that, you know, what we know today isn't going to be what we know tomorrow. And Mm -hmm. what are people going to say in 50 or 100 years about us? Mm -hmm. You have to keep that always in mind. But there was a huge amount of resistance. And it's, it's hard for us to understand in the 21st century. But imagine this young man comes around and he says, that there are these invisible creatures and they are killing your patient. Um, And it was a little bit, it was was strange to accept. The other part of that was that essentially what he was telling the older generation surgeons was that they had been inadvertently killing their patients all along. And these were men who had, they were in the, the business of saving lives. And I think that was a hard pill to swallow for them. So the way that Lister ultimately does triumph is he he has to get to the younger generation. And he's a teacher up in Scotland. And every year, you know, hundreds of students are graduating from his classes and they're going out into the world and they call them the Listerians and they go out and they spread the gospel of antisepsis. And that is ultimately how the change happens. It's a slow burn. Right, right. It's winning over a new generation, it sounds like. It's not so much convincing older people as it is training a new generation of doctors. Yeah, exactly. And and just how we see, you know, progress being made as well to some extent today. Mm-hmm. So this is what happens. He does live into his own fame, um, as you mentioned at the top 
that Listerine was named after him. He mm-hmm. came to Philadelphia 135 years ago to convince Americans of the existence of germs. And this man was in the audience and inspired to create this product. It wasn't originally a mouthwash. It was actually used to treat gonorrhea, of all things. Mm. And there was another man in the audience in Philadelphia. His name was Robert Wood Johnson, and he, too, was inspired. He mm. got together with his brothers and created the company Johnson & Johnson. And they produced uh, surgical antiseptic dressing. So there was a lot of little things that came out of his trip to America. But eventually there was this sort of carbolic acid mania and people were creating all kinds of products around it. But it's interesting that he was so famous in his own at the end of his life. He's I like to say that he's one of those figures who burns bright in his own time, but then is largely forgotten shortly after. Mm. Because although medical historians and historians in general certainly know of Lister's existence, I feel like the public aren't as familiar with his name. Lindsay Fitzharris is author of the book The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine. Lindsay, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to know more about Robert Liston, the surgeon who accidentally cut off his assistant's finger, we've got a link to an article at our website that examines his bloody and colorful life. That's at innovationhub.org. Thank you.